Hello, and welcome to Prism of the Past, a semi-weekly series about historical events, people, and situations from the fascinating to the forgotten. I'm the Illuminati, and today we're gonna be talking about Japan. Throughout history, Japan has been considered an incredibly fierce country, especially in the eyes of Americans. In the past, they were depicted as a militaristic aggressor. They were the country that bombed Pearl Harbor, colonized Korea, invaded China, a threat to say the least. And so ever since World War II, Japan has seemingly promoted and used anime and kawaii culture to essentially rebrand themselves into a culture that to the general American would seem non-threatening. Now, before I get into this, I wanna put a massive disclaimer in front of this episode. I wrote this script because I believe that some of the intentions in history of anime and kawaii culture are fascinating and wanted to talk about it, just as like a general thing. But as I started digging into the topic, and as you're going to see today, there is a wide variety of opinions around this topic. And some of them almost tread into like this weird kind of conspiracy level territory. And while I'm not a conspiracy theorist myself, I think they're still interesting to look at. And I'm also not an expert on Japan. So please recognize that while I'm creating this from a place of pure intent and interest, I hope I get the elements right here. I am trying my best. But with that being said, let's explore some of this more and see where the anime and kawaii culture began. And if, as some conspiracies like to state, this is in fact a cover-up to hide Japan's previous militaristic like strength. So let's get into it. To provide a bit of background here, I went to the Hagley Museum website. They have a podcast called Stories from the Stacks, and one episode is all about how Japanese companies rebranded in the US after World War II. William Chu explains that in the years after the war, most Americans were loath to find Japanese products. The conflict with Japan was a massive part of this, but the goods that came from Japan at the time were often cheaply made and of poor quality. According to William, the idea was to rebuild Japan economically, The Japanese perspective is much more nationally driven. Sort of a, we need to rebuild our economy. Our domestic economy is not enough to support this production of consumer goods. We need to export. Although there was quite a bit of debate in the policy world in the first decade after the war in terms of, should we focus on a more domestic economy or more of an international economy with all of the various risks that entails? Ultimately, Japan decided to focus their attention on international exports. So the question became, what would they export? Well, Japan had a fantastic militaristic legacy. Their optics during World War II were so great that American soldiers wanted and coveted the binoculars and rangefinders from Japanese soldiers that they struck down in battle. However, since Japan didn't want to feed the bias against them, they decided to put up this technology to work in other areas, in products that would be high quality and begin to change the way Americans saw Japan. Therefore, one of the earliest products they began exporting were cameras. And before I go on, I want to make it clear that William says he doesn't want to overstep any boundaries by making a general assumption as to why the Japanese focused on which products exactly. He can't speak for everyone and neither do I. The situation is nuanced and a touchy one to say the least. After all, there were some incredibly racist and dehumanizing depictions of the Japanese people in America circulating throughout the World War II era. Once the war ended, Japan may have felt that they not only needed to rebrand so they weren't seen as violent, but to slow or prevent the exaggerated racial stereotypes against them. And of course, it wasn't just the Japanese making these decisions to rebuild, but the allies demanding these changes as well. According to one source, 
The first phase, roughly from the end of the war in 1945 to 1947, involved the most fundamental changes for the Japanese government and society. The Allies punished Japan for its past militarism and expansion by convening war crime trials in Tokyo. At the same time, the SCAP, Supreme Command of Allied Powers, dismantled the Japanese army and banned former military officers from taking roles of political leadership in the new government. In the economic field, CSAP introduced land reform designed to benefit the majority tenant farmers and reduce the power of rich landowners, many of whom had advocated for war and supported Japanese expansionism in the 1930s. MacArthur also tried to break up the large Japanese business conglomerates as part of an effort to transform the economy into a free market capitalist system. In 1947, allied advisors essentially dictated a new constitution to Japan's leaders. Some of the most profound changes in the document included downgrading the emperor's status to that of a figurehead without political control and placing more power in the parliamentary system, promoting greater rights and privileges for women and renouncing the right to wage war, which involved eliminating all non-defensive armed forces. Another stage of the occupation called the reverse course lasted until 1950. In this stage of the occupation, the economic rehabilitation of Japan took center stage. SCAP became considered that a weak Japanese economy would increase the influence of the domestic communist movement. And with a communist victory in China's civil war increasingly likely, the future of East Asia appeared to be at stake. Occupation policies to address the weakening economy ranged from tax reforms to measures aimed at controlling inflation. However, the most serious problem was the shortage of raw materials required to feed Japanese industries and markets for finished goods. The outbreak of the Korean War in 1950 provided SCAP with just the opportunity it needed to address this problem, prompting some occupation officials to suggest that Korea came along and saved us. After the UN entered the Korean War, Japan became the principal supply depot for UN forces. The conflict also placed Japan firmly within the confines of the US defense perimeter in Asia, assuring the Japanese leadership that whatever the state of its military, no real threat would be made against Japanese soil. And I know that was a massively long quote, but I didn't wanna take anything out of context in the slightest. The point here is that between 1945 to 1950, the US's perception of internal threats changed so profoundly that the idea of a rearmed and militant Japan no longer alarmed US officials. Instead, the real threat was communism, particularly in Asia. With Japan not seen as a threat or a public enemy, they could truly begin to rebuild and change their reputation. And at first they did this with technology. As we mentioned, they began exporting high-tech and high-quality goods to give Japan the reputation of a business superpower. Sony first utilized the transistor to make small radios, an application that hasn't been pursued by American inventions. In the late 50s, the importation of new commercial video recorders by Japanese government broadcaster NHK from the US inventor Ampex alerted MIDI, the Ministry of International Trade and Industry, and led to a systematic effort to import the basic technology. The first microprocessor was developed by Intel in 1969 in response to the request of Biscom, a Japanese calculator maker. That's not to say that everything was smooth sailing. In the 80s, as the Japanese grew wealthier, Americans blamed them for the loss of American jobs, particularly in the auto and textile industries. And in some extreme cases, they reacted by destroying Japanese cars and attacking Asian Americans. So no, the relationship between the States and Japan hasn't been without change or tension. Yet, though Japan still remains a leader in technological advancement, that isn't the only image that they wanted to present to the Western world. 
So let's get into what many of you think of when you think of Japan, or at the very least, the artsy and creative Japanese products you might own, the kawaii, the anime, and how they became so massive. We'll start with taking a look at kawaii culture. Kawaii or cute essentially means something childlike. It celebrates sweet, adorable, innocent, pure characters, animals, and items. Funnily enough, kawaii actually emerged with a change in handwriting among Japanese women, according to my source. In 1974, large numbers of teenagers, especially women, began to write using a new style of childish characters. By 1978, the phenomenon had become nationwide, and in 1985, it was estimated that upwards of 5 million young people were using the new script. Previously, Japanese script had been written vertically using strokes that varied in thickness along with their length. The new style was written laterally, preferable using a mechanical pencil to produce very fine, even lines. Using extremely stylized yawn did characters with English and little cartoon pictures such as hearts, stars, and faces inserted randomly into the text, the new style of handwriting was distinct and difficult to read. There were actually discipline problems that emerged from this as teachers did not want students writing this way, but the cute handwriting craze took off. Cards, stationery, and little cakes started taking advantage of the cute craze. Even credit card advertisements featured cute or kawaii characters. Asian Studies website states, Sanrio, the company that began selling Hello Kitty products in 1975, successfully established its business at the intersection of youth culture and commercial goods by developing cute characters for notebooks, pens, and other writing goods, which they call fancy goods. Concurrently, the girls' manga magazine Ribbon invented Furoku, a sort of supplement to manga magazines, which normally consisted of stationaries and paper folders featuring pretty characters from manga. Illustrations by Matsu Ako, whose Otome Chiku drawing style of manga crazed girls decorated ribbons for Roku from 1975 until the mid eighties. In the 1970s, the political consciousness of the sixties left student movements waned and cultures of fashion and mass media flourished. Of course, critics of the movement would say that Kawaii infantilized those that took part in this feminine cute culture. And they believe that rather than growing up and taking on social obligations of adulthood, Japanese youth were attempting to avoid these oppressive demands made on them by aspiring not to grow up at all. Alongside Kawaii though, there was another related market starting to grow, anime. In the early 1900s, Japanese animators were mostly used in the context of anti-American propaganda. However, after World War II, that changed. Osamu Tetsuka, largely considered to be the father of modern manga, became famous through the success of Astro Boy, which received an animated adaptation in 1963. Years later, when Hayao Miyazaki founded Studio Ghibli in 1985, anime went through a visual quality renewal and a new generation of directors emerged. By the 1980s, anime had become to come into its own. Around this time, it was largely American and European children from military and expat business families based in Japan who circulated bootlegged videotapes of anime to their peers back home. Akira was released as an anime and it was so detailed and intricate that it took animators years to hand paint every single shot used to bring the story to film. The film is now widely considered a cult classic that expanded anime's reach into the US and European markets. Dragon Ball Z and Pokemon followed in the 90s, projecting a new image of Japan to the world. The image of Japan in the West in the 1980s and early 1990s was composed of two extremes, 
that of orientalized feudal Japan depicted in samurai films with ninjas and sword fights, and that of hypermodern Japan where economic animals are crammed into trains and pump Walkman and Toyota to the world. Manga, anime, games, and kawaii culture all gave Japan a more relatable and human image. Perhaps just as important, it wasn't a large corporation that pushed this cultural fad onto the West, but it was emerging through word of mouth. Otaku or geek culture became more mainstream and as the internet grew, so did anime's fan base. According to CNN, young Americans were researching for cultural products offering new perspectives. And to them, Japan appeared to be a place as exciting as Akira, its cyberpunk landscape and controversial plot offering a portal into a different aesthetic and psychological universe. Japanese culture was confronting darker, exciting themes in a way that the US and Europe and seemed slower at adopting, said Napier, a professor of Japanese studies at Tufts University. Anime became a way of filling an intellectual void in the West. Japan saw this as an opportunity to shift their image once more. As we saw earlier, Japan began exporting high quality tech during the post-war period. Cameras, cars, you name it. But as anime, Nintendo, Pokemon, and the like became incredibly popular, Japan began to present themselves as an exporter of unique artistic culture, as opposed to a global business superpower. In 1997, Japan's Agency of Cultural Affairs started supporting exhibitions on manga, anime, video games, and media art. American journalist Douglas McRae captured that shift in his 2002 foreign policy essay, where he coined the term Japanese gross national cool. McRae described it as an idea, a reminder that commercial trends and products and a country's knack for spawning them can serve political and economic ends. However, even as Japan's national cool was on the rise, and we'll discuss that in just a moment, the question of intent arose. There's many, many different perspectives someone could argue here, and I won't pretend like I have the exact answer. For some topics like MLMs, you don't really need to be so much of a historian to know that it's wrong and deceptive. But for a topic as nuanced and as sensitive as this, I wanna make it incredibly clear that I'm only trying to present as many sides to an argument as possible. I can't say for sure which may be correct, and my opinion is only based on what I've found. So with that being said, let's get into some of the more murky territory. What was Japan's intent when they promoted this more kawaii image? Was it truly to be less threatening or could there be other reasons behind it? Let's get into some of those theories. There are varying viewpoints as to the intent of kawaii culture. Though I do think that this cute culture has contributed to changing how the world may see Japan, some have speculated that this may have been done to hide the war crimes that Japan committed during World War II. These war crimes are well-documented though, and as evidence tells us, it's actually the US that was responsible for making secret deals with Imperial Japanese doctors. They gave immunity to their performance of deadly human experimentation in order to monopolize the data for biological warfare. In Nuremberg, Germany, the US and its allies were harshly prosecuting Nazi doctors for the same activities that they wanted to use for their benefit in Japan. Considering that there's this much evidence that the US overlooked these crimes against humanity simply because it benefited them, I hardly think kawaii culture even needed to be a cover-up for crimes. The US covered up plenty without Hello Kitty playing any part in it. Not to mention, as much as otaku and kawaii culture has spread through word of mouth, That also leads me to believe that this shift in Japan's image was their way of rebranding as opposed to hiding anything. Of course, the question of intent is a really difficult topic to argue. And there's those that are, you know, disagreeing and those that strongly agree. In an opinion piece for the New York Times, Norihiro Kato wrote, "'Cutifying something was a way of making oneself its protector, rendering it powerless in a non-adversarial manner.' 
One famous example took place in 1988 when high school girls reportedly remarked that the dying Hirohito, the emperor, was kawaii, making a non-issue of his responsibility for the war. Hello Kitty, the white cat with a pink bow on her ear, is the ultimate embodiment of Japan's cute culture. She has no background and no mouth. She represents the impulse to escape history and to stop talking about it. Personally, I've always heard that Hello Kitty was designed to have ambiguous emotions so that consumers could project their own emotions onto it. I'm not saying that Hello Kitty can't be seen as an impulse to escape history, but I don't believe she was created to be as such. However, I'm not even sure that I agree with this specific point or not. Kato does raise a good argument in the next portion of the article, which reads, Japan has also cutified Anne Frank. In January, the Israeli newspaper Haaretz ran an article exploring Anne Frank's popularity in Japan. It drew on an interview with Elaine Lukowitz, a French journalist and the creator of an interactive iPad app called Anne Frank in the Land of Manga, a comic strip laden with photographs and interviews. Anne Frank's story is unusually popular in Japan, but instead of being known for her denunciation of the Holocaust or warning that she offers against racism, she argues that in Japan, Anne Frank symbolizes the ultimate World War II victim and that most Japanese see themselves that way too because of the American atomic bomb attacks in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Japan is the victim, he contends, never the perpetrator. Mr. Lukowitz suggests that the Japanese can share this kinship of victims with European Jews because so many people, especially the young, are astonishingly ignorant of Japan's actions during World War II. As Mr. Lukowitz says, they don't think of the countless Anne Franks their troops created in Korea and China during the same years. I find this argument persuasive, but there's more going on here. Anne Frank's reception in Japan is another instance of the cutification of unresolved issues from the war. Anne Frank's diary became unusually popular in Japan, not only through translations of the book itself, but also through at least four manga versions and three animated films that tell the story of a girl every bit as cute as Hello Kitty. And this, I can understand it. I can understand why this would be so particularly alarming as the idea of cutifying Anne Frank takes away from the horrific acts she suffered through. Then again, others may argue that it's making sure her legacy lives on and can be told to the masses. And to also make it clear, not everyone agrees with Kato's view here, though many do. Other articles such as the Japan Times feature Gaitsu Sato, a leader from the Hiroshima Auschwitz Peace March, stating that, quote, we Japanese as both aggressors and victims of the war should have a special duty in calling for world peace. We who went through the bomb and occupation, but at the same time must reflect on the sin of aggression that we committed, end quote. Personally, I agree with Sato when he states that it's possible to be both the victim and an aggressor. Plus, when we're talking about the entire country filled with individual people, the situation will never be completely black and white. After all, there are other arguments to be made here. The US did drop two atomic bombs on Japan. Following an event like that, is it any wonder that Japan would do everything in its power to not appear threatening towards a nation that did such a thing? That they would identify with Anne Frank and Sadako Saisaki? And she, by the way, is the woman from A Thousand Paper Cranes story, if you didn't recognize the name, very sad book, but a very good read. Another source that speaks to the intent of Kawaii claims that the handwriting we mentioned earlier didn't begin as a way for the Japanese to appear less threatening to outsiders but that Kawaii as we know it today grew out of Japanese student protesters in the 1960s who were tired of tradition and used this to reclaim their individuality. According to this article, in the late 1960s, social upheaval took place worldwide and Japanese people took part by protesting and speaking out against nuclear weapons and the conflict in Vietnam. In 1968, Japanese college students took their protesting to campuses and refused to attend classes. 
Instead of reading their textbooks, they read manga. While this was partially due to their beliefs about world events, young people also rebelled against the strictness of traditional Japanese culture and the expectation that everyone has a predestined role in the social construct. These protests continued into the 1970s as female students embraced the innocence of their youth and tried to avoid adulthood. They even went so far as using rounded and horizontal handwriting to establish individuality. Though anime and kawaii culture may have been eventually used to project a certain image of Japan to the West, it's pretty clear to me that the intent didn't actually start that way. So to claim that kawaii was simply created to cover up war crimes doesn't fit with the narrative. That's at least the only conclusion I've drawn so far. So I don't wanna speak in absolutes with something as multifaceted and complicated as this. Regardless of how anime and kawaii became so popular, there's no doubt that Americans associate Japan with these things today. This helps feed into that term we saw earlier, cool Japan. The more and more this culture grew, so did the idea of revitalizing the country under this brand. Japan's national cool was on the rise in the early 2000s, according to that foreign policy article we mentioned earlier, fueled by the popularity of manga and anime. The Smithsonian Magazine explains, over the past decade, other countries have jumped on the brand wagon, adopting slogans such as incredible India and drink Finland. By marketing cultural exports, nations hope to tap a vast global market and nation branding can be a form of soft power, a way to gaining backdoor influence in the international community. Ian Condry, a cultural anthropologist at MIT, says something as seemingly frivolous as a Pokemon obsession can blossom into a sympathetic response to Japanese people as a whole. He is skeptical though of official efforts to co-opt Japanese coolness. The forefront of Japanese popular culture tends to be edgy and off color. So there is a likely a limit to the kinds of things that Japan's perennially conservative government is willing to support publicly, he says. To be sure, countries have always sought to influence how the rest of the world sees them, but branding a nation as a product is a relatively new approach, which is very different from thinking about a nation as a community of citizens. Takahashi, an art curator in Mido, agreed that if Japan practices how to live in harmony in nature and sustain a peaceful world, then branding will not be necessary. Nonetheless, the phrase Cool Japan struck and NHK Enterprises even produced a television show called Cool Japan Hakatsu, where each episode focuses on a particular aspect of Japanese culture. In the early days of the show, the focus was naturally on Japan's pop culture, Not to mention that Japan's cultural ascent was both made possible and necessary thanks to Japan's economic bubble popping in the 90s. The reasons behind this are a bit convoluted and could probably be made into another episode on its own. But the point is made that as people in Japan started spending less, companies were looking abroad for new markets. Yet as the idea of cool Japan grew, so did the government's interest in it. Since 2005, they sponsored an annual cosplay competition. And since 2007, they've sponsored awards for the best manga artists. There can be no doubt that the Japanese government leaned into this idea of cool Japan and who wouldn't really? To give off the impression of a unique creative culture while profiting off others' love of their exports after a recession, it made good business sense. Rumi Sakamoto, a lecturer in Japan at the University of Auckland and an expert on comics and Japanese pop culture, sees the thread going back to Prime Minister Junichiro Koizumi, 2001 to 2006 administration. Since Mr. Koizumi and Mr. Aso, the Japanese government has been consciously promoting Japanese pop culture, said Sakamoto. It is taken seriously. At a time of economic recession, culture and cool Japan are given the status of a new hope for Japan's influence overseas. Others, such as Marie Rosenbard, an associate professor from the University of Copenhagen, states that even though cultural diplomacy is more active, it is still the industry and the consumers that are active in the anime, manga, and kawaii cultures. 
the consumers are still the drivers, whereas the state is merely trying to hang on and exploit something that is very visible. This sure seems like a win-win for Japan. The culture thrives there and the state enjoys the benefit. However, there are other East Asian countries that seem upset by the concept of cool Japan as well. Journalist Peter Harmson states that Japan is portrayed in a positive light among East Asia's young in a way that contrasts sharply with the feelings of their parents and grandparents who experienced the Japanese Imperial Army's aggression during World War II. In evidence, Harmson points to the fact that about 80,000 Chinese students are currently studying in Japan, accounting for more than half of all foreign students at Japanese universities. It is unlikely, he says, that the figure would be so high if the only source of knowledge on part of young Chinese were the Chinese government, which still remains focused on the brutality inflicted on China by Japanese soldiers. Japanese pop culture and the positive image of the country that it has helped to project has undoubtedly been a major factor behind the decision by many Chinese to study in Japan, Harmson argues. Rumi Sakamoto, on the other hand, believes that younger Asians, such as these students, can make clear distinctions. I think younger people are increasingly accepting of Japan and its cultural influence. This does not mean they are not critical of Japan in its past. They do separate state from culture, anime from foreign policy, she states. This seems kind of more like the answer, really. While we may or may not be sympathetic to Japan because we enjoy the creative aspects of their culture, separating that from foreign policy and past are important. If all that someone knows about Japan is anime, then they can hardly speak on any international conflicts that may occur there, whether or not their impression is favorable. After all, though Disney is almost inarguably a massive part of the culture here in the United States, the Smithsonian even makes the argument that Disney defines the American experience. That doesn't mean that Disney should be the indicator of how someone views the United States as a whole though. I'm not saying Disney and anime and kawaii culture are perfectly comparable as the scale and effect is different, but it is probably the best comparison I can make here to illustrate the point. So now that we understand what cool Japan is, let's discuss how it's grown and how it's been promoted in the past decade. The Japan Times wrote that in June, 2010, a new creative industries promotion office was established. It's the Cool Japan Advisory Council and their job is well, to simply keep Japan cool. At the time, CNN reported that the Japanese government was proposing to put out $237 million or over 19 billion yen into the creative sector to keep the industry thriving. Mika Takagi is the deputy director of the Creative Industries Promotion Office, AKA the Cool Japan Office, the government body charged with making Japan's cultural industries, anime, graphic design, film, fashion, and more start paying. Japan has a lot of unique culture, but if you compare it with other money-making industries, the creative industries don't make much money, Takagi told CNN. We want to try to invest more in these cultural issues and try to brand Japanese products with the uniqueness of Japanese culture, she added. Unfortunately, these projections never really amounted to much as many recent articles I've seen about the Cool Japan Council have been largely negative. Granted, I don't live in Japan, Japanese news sources say differently, but Japan Today itself says that the Cool Japan budget has yielded little to no real results. Personally, I'd say that one of the reasons for this could be because of how Cool Japan came to be in the first place. The aspects of the culture, the anime, kawaii, and manga have all been spread by the people. That isn't something that government can replicate. I could be completely wrong and I won't pretend that being cool in general is something I'm an expert on. Generally speaking though, Cool Japan hasn't been the massive success you might think it would be. Mizuki Takahashi, the art curator we mentioned earlier, said that the timing of Cool Japan was pretty poor as well. The Smithsonian reads, it was May, 2011 and Mizuki Takahashi couldn't believe the irony. A mere two months before, her country had been battered by a triple disaster of an earthquake, tsunami and nuclear meltdown. 
And yet here she was reading a report from Japan's Ministry of Economy, Trade and Industry, promoting a vision for revitalizing the country under the brand Cool Japan. There was nothing cool about the reactors at Fukushima, a nuclear power plant, Takahashi noted. Shortly after this triple disaster, when economic losses were estimated to be 250 to $500 billion, it didn't seem like the best time to promote Cool Japan. Yet even when the funding did come through in 2013 and people were optimistic for the expansion of this culture, they were disappointed. Japan Times reported that two years later in 2015, the only cool thing Cool Japan seemed to be good at was playing it cool and keeping deathly quiet. It was enough to enrage musician and celebrity of refined taste, Gact, to launch a harsh criticism of the organization that once promised to help his industry. The Japanese government made a new attempt at this in the name of Cool Japan, but while they have set up a huge budget for it, they have no idea where the money should go. It's no exaggeration to say it has fallen into a downward spiral of wasted tax money flowing into little known companies. Back in 2015, a search of the Cool Japan website yielded promotions of abacus and gauze markers rather than say Naruto Musical, which was playing overseas at the time. Some of their major investments in 2017 included the likes of Waku Waku Japan, a satellite television channel which shows nothing but 24 seven Japanese programming. Though Japan Today seemed hopeful for these endeavors, other articles such as one from Nikkei Asia have said that the store is bleeding money. Apparently the department store in Malaysia is like triple than expected the operating loss in its first April to June quarter. Though the Cool Japan Fund agreed to invest around 50 billion yen in 24 projects, internal documents and evidence has shown that 10 of their 18 investments have failed to meet earnings. Japan Today makes the point that rather than open up Japanese businesses in other countries, they should focus on ones that already have a foothold. Yoshinoya, a Japanese fast food restaurant, already has some inroads in foreign countries, suggesting that it's viable. The other suggestion Japan Today published was the idea that Universal Studios Japan annual lineup of its pop culture themed attractions would benefit from the investment. After all, plenty of tourists attend Universal Studio in Japan, so it certainly sounds like a good idea. This isn't to say that this is without a doubt the solution, but it sure seems that it would be more profitable than what Cool Japan Fund has been used for thus far. All in all, I find this topic quite interesting. I know that today's episode was only a pretty brief overview. And when talking about an entire culture and how it grows, it's impossible to summarize everything in only one little 30 minute episode. Even so, I'd heard about how anime and kawaii culture had been used to rebrand Japan to the Western world, and I found that interesting, so I wanted to explore it and see what the truth in it was. But with that being said, that is where we are going to end today's episode. So I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you learned something new. And if you did, make sure that you're liking, following, and subscribing so that you can stay up to date on all the recent episodes. And if you want to catch up with me outside of these episodes, make sure you click on my Linktree link in the description box. It's going to give you links for my Twitter, Instagram, Discord server, Twitch, other projects I'm involved with, you name it, it will be there. But with all that being said, that is the end of today's Prism of the Past. I hope you enjoyed it and I'll see you in the next one. Bye.